Uh, so Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all you, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to some faces that we don't usually see. And there's one face that I want to point out particularly. Uh, we announced her last week, but we uh, have the Carranzas have brought a special guest today, and that's their newborn Cheyenne. So welcome, Cheyenne. And congratulations again, you guys. It's, that's wonderful. Um, we want to invite our children to uh, Children's Church. If you head to the back, your, uh, your teacher will meet you. It's just a context where they can learn in a more age-appropriate setting. So uh, that's uh, good for them. That up a little bit, and uh, let's go ahead and, and open in prayer. Well, Lord, um, as Ramey reminded us this morning, this is our last worship service with him in this space. But uh, Lord, as they go to New Jersey, we pray that you would bless uh, Ramey and Jen, settle them well. I pray that they would connect with the church and that they would feel immediately a part of it. Lord, that that brotherhood and sisterhood that we share across the world with believers would be evident there as well. And uh, Lord, um, we look forward to the day when we'll worship with them again uh, before the throne of grace. And uh, Lord, we stand united with you. So bless our brother and sister, we ask. Um, Lord, we pray for Kayla as she's heading off to college soon. Uh, Father, would you surround her with friends who would encourage her faith and build her up? Lord, we pray for a church there that would connect with her immediately and just draw her in and help, um, help her grow in Christ. Um, and Father, we pray that, uh, that you would just be with her in that college experience and keep her safe. Uh, Lord, we also want to pray for um, the uh, next worship leader you're bringing to us. And uh, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding in selecting that person and that that would be a person that would continue this church on their journey, that we would take our next steps as well. Father, we want to pray for uh, Kevin's dad, Ken Reese, in hospice care. Lord, I pray that you would take him gently across the Jordan into the celestial city. Lord, that you would meet him at those gates and welcome him home. And so, Lord, would you please give him an easy passing and, uh, and, and gentleness. Thank you for his faithful witness in his life, his work at uh, Valley Bible, and uh, his uh, his family that he raised, Lord, we, we're blessed because of what he's done in his children. And so thank you for that. And we pray for him in peace, Lord. Father, we ask for um, Joanne's health. Lord, would you strengthen her? Thank you for the heart surgery being done and, 
And Lord, I pray that you would continue to hold her up and, uh, and bless her. Lord, remind her on a daily basis that you love her and you care for her. So be with our sister in Christ and, and, and um, help us as a church to be mindful of her as well, how we can help and how we can support her. And Father, we thank you that Tommy and Ebony are on the mend. Thank you that uh, the, their health is, is improving. Uh, thank you that, you that you've made them young and strong enough to fight off uh, whatever the, the uh, illness is and, and to get back on their feet. And Lord, we look forward to the day when they, uh, they'll be able to rejoin us. So give them uh, success in that. And then, Lord, with a heavy heart, we turn to the affairs of the world. And, Lord, the, um, the, the unnecessary and precipitous pullout of our troops from Afghanistan and the chaos that that's leaving behind. Father, we think of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are still in Afghanistan and will remain there. Lord, we know from Philippians that for them to live is Christ and to die is gain. But, Lord, they're going to be in really terrible, terrifying situation as the Taliban dominate that country. So would you give them the grace that they're going to need? And Lord, may they witness to Christ in the middle of the brutality that, that is most likely coming. And Lord, our real concern, our real heavy heart is for those who don't know you in Afghanistan, the, the horrible situation that they're going to be facing. Father, we pray for the women and children who will be brutalized, the, the young girls who will be just terrorized by the Taliban. Lord, would you break the back of that organization. Lord, would you shatter their teeth in their mouth and bring their reign to an end? Lord, we saw you in the book of Daniel bring up uh, regimes and, and rulers and bring them down. And Lord, you are, you are entirely capable of doing that in Afghanistan. And so, Lord, we pray for the deliverance of our, our friends in Afghanistan, but also our brothers and sisters there as well. Have mercy on them, we ask. And Lord, now with this heavy heart, we turn to the book of Philippians with some really great news. So lift our spirits now. Uh, Holy Spirit, help us to see and to understand and to, uh, to hear what it is that you're saying to this church this morning in this word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So I've been having um, Chris read verses 1 through 11, but we've been working through it in pieces. So the first part was the first two verses, kind of the introduction to the letter. The next part, the part we saw last week was Paul's thanksgiving for the Philippian church. And this week, we're going to listen to his prayer. And we're going to learn some interesting and some important things from it. But let me introduce this topic a little bit. Um, Buddha was said to have said, the mind is everything. What you think, you become. Now, the thing with Buddha was he only went, read one of God's books. He only read creation. So he went and sat under a tree and he thought about creation. And so there's parts of Buddhism that sound right. Uh, some of their pillars, some of the things they teach are almost seven of the Ten Commandments. And that's because you get a man who, who only read one book. So is Buddha right when he says the mind is everything, you, what you think you become? Well, it sounds almost like there's biblical support for that. In the King James Version, Proverbs 23, 7 says, for as he thinketh in his heart, so he is. So is that saying what Buddha said? Did he happen to stumble upon a truth there? Well, maybe not. Because the proverb is actually, the King James translates it that way. Most of the other versions don't translate it that way. And even if that is the correct translation, Solomon is telling his son, here's somebody that you should not be like. As he thinks, so he is. He's thinking eat and drink and just being slothful and, and that kind of thing. So maybe that's not advice for us. 
So if Buddha's wrong, if the mind is not everything, if you're not what you think you become, then what are we? What, what is it that, that we are? Where, where do we find ourselves? Well, I want to read a, a portion of this book to you. This is um, James K.A. Smith. He's a Christian philosopher. And this book is called You Are What You Love, which kind of gives away the, the answer here. But listen to how he describes it. This is a little long, but, but I'll try to be careful and, and please pay attention. What do you want? That is the question. It is the first, last, and most fundamental Christian or question of Christian discipleship. In the Gospel of John, it is the first question Jesus poses to those who follow him. When two would-be disciples who are caught up in John the Baptist's enthusiasm begin to follow, Jesus wheels around on them and pointedly asks, what do you want? Now, just an aside real quick, the, the better translation is what are you seeking? But is seeking different from want? It's pretty much the same thing. It's not a terrible translation. Smith goes on. Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John, or you and me, and ask, what do you know? He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? This is the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask of us precisely because we are what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are at the very core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of a human person. Thus, the scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Proverbs 4.23. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. So discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with him, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God, and to crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand the kingdom of God. Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. His teaching doesn't just touch the calm, cool, collected space of reflection and contemplation. He is a teacher who invades the heated, passionate regions of the heart. He is the word who penetrates even to dividing of soul and spirit. He judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Hebrews 4.12. To follow Jesus is to become a student of the rabbi who teaches us how to love. To be a disciple of Jesus is to enroll in his school of charity. Jesus is not lecturer-in-chief. His school of charity is not like a lecture hall where we passively take notes while Jesus spouts facts about himself in a litany of text-heavy PowerPoint slides. So the idea that of the book is you are what you love. We are primarily loving things. And Smith takes a whole book to explain that and to unpack that. Well, 
I'm going to defend his, his proposition today with one sentence. One simple sentence, three verses, is going to explain what, what, um, um, what Smith means by this. And we'll see that in the most unusual place. It's in Paul's prayer for the Philippians, where he's going to teach us about the position of the heart. And so let's take a look at what he has to say. This is, this is an important lesson, and we know that it's important because it's Paul's prayer for them. So beginning in verse 8, this is kind of setting it up. Verse 8 says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So what that sentence is, is that's moving us from Paul's thanksgiving to, for the uh, Philippian church. This is what the Philippian church was like, and I thank you, God. And then he says this, God is my witness how I yearn for you with all affection, is kind of setting us up to move into his prayer. So that, that phrase, God is my witness, it's called a mild oath. Um, today, if you hear somebody say, is God is my witness, almost assuredly the next thing out of their mouth is a lie. That would never be true with Paul. So when Paul calls God's name in, in, into this, when call, Paul calls on God, he's swearing an oath. And for an Orthodox Jew, a rabbi, a, a Pharisee, this is huge. This is, this is not a, a phrase we should just pass over quickly. This is, means something. He is serious about this. As God is my witness, how I yearn for you. His desire is for the Philippians. He loves the Philippians. He wants to be with them. He wants the best for them. I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. That, that word affection, sometimes we can you know, use it a little bit mildly. It's you know, pat somebody on the head and that's a term of affection or something. The, the word behind this has to do with the, your deepest inside longings. It's the, the heart of you, the very center of you. He's, he's, he's yearning for them from his very depths. My affection is from the very depths of my being, but it's the affection of Jesus Christ. So this isn't just, you know, I'm glad we're financial partners in my mission. This is something much broader. Remember, he said that they had partnership in the gospel. They had fellowship in the gospel. And so his love, his yearning for them is rooted in the common place they have in Jesus Christ. And that sets us up for his prayer. So his prayer then begins, and it is my prayer for you, or it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. One sentence, three verses. So he begins with, it is my prayer. In other words, what he's doing, he's calling on God to issue this very thing. It's in God's hands to do this. Lord, would you do this for the Philippians? And so what is his point? What is the thing he prays for? What is the main thing that he wants? You would expect it to be, Lord, would you preserve their doctrine? Lord, would you, would you keep them physically safe? Something along those lines. The paramount, the most important thing to Paul for the Philippian believers is, Lord, would you make their love abound more and more? So, so right off the bat, we see Paul's main concern is with their love. Now, why is it that we would think it would be more important to have their brains filled, having better doctrine, better understanding? Why is that? Well, I think the problem, if I can use that word, the, the, the issue comes from the fact that we are, in the Western culture, really influenced by this term called modernity. And modernity was a way of thinking. It began probably in the Industrial Revolution, um, but it, it was the idea that we're going to figure it out. We can do it. 
Um, science had progressed so much by the time the Industrial Revolution came along, they thought, man, we can, science is going to answer everything for us. We've got it. We've got it figured out. That reaches its crescendo, especially here in America, around the turn of the 20th century. Darwinism had flooded across the European continent towards the, the end of the, uh, the 19th century. It was delayed getting here because we were busy in a civil war. But once the civil war was over, Darwinism flooded into our shores, and now we have an answer. We don't have to rely on deity to create human beings or to cause animals to, to change from one kind to another. We've got evolution. Science is answering all our questions. Humanity is getting better. Isn't this great? Evolution tells us it's all getting better. It comes crashing down around World War I and then really comes to a concrete halt in World War II. But that mindset, that idea that we are primarily thinkers, we primarily understand better. How can we make human beings better? Education. If we just fill their heads with more facts, then surely they will understand better. And this is that, moderno, that modernity, that modern mindset is, is, is informing us that way, is leading us that way. And to a degree, there, there's some truth in it. We'll see that in a little bit, but that isn't the full answer. And one thing that I think of as the, um, the yeah, but in this, the, the chink in the armor, the place where it's like, yeah, but that doesn't quite work, is in a weird place, advertising. If you look at advertising from the middle of the uh, 19th century, what it was back then is here's a list of facts about our wonderful product. But by the 20th century, they begin to catch on. There's got to be more to it than that. And then you get to the 1950s. Anybody ever seen Mad Men? They have learned by the 1950s, the product is not what's important. How you feel about the product is what's important. How does the product make you feel about yourself? How will other people view you if you use this product? And advertising takes this change. That ran countercultural to modernity, the idea that if we just inform people. So they're, they're, that, that doesn't quite fit. The culture is wrestling with that. Why did advertising get it right? Well, because they're onto something. They're onto something true. How we feel is really what's going on. So when Paul prays, may your love abound more and more, he is going to the center of the Philippians' heart. What is the most important part of them? The part that if God gets a hold of and changes, everything else will align. It's your loves. What do you love? What are you after? Now, when you look at that, it says, may your love abound more and more. Does it say what your love is for? What that love is supposed to be about? You look at the text, and this is how you study the Bible, is you look down at the text and you say, what does it say? Not what do I think it says? It doesn't say what the love is for. It's not, it doesn't say, may your love for God abound more and more. It doesn't say, may your love for the fellowship abound more. May your love for common humanity abound more and more. It just says your love. It's a general term. When you look through the rest of the passage, what he says informs and influences that love is broad. It's a very big thing. So he's talking about their love for everything. How is their heart functioning here? May your love abound more and more. Now, the road to behavior runs right through the heart, but it gets to the heart through the head. So one of the things I've kind of left hanging is it almost sounds like Smith is dismissing knowledge or, or downplaying its function in, in us. And what Paul says next is he doesn't just want your love to be out there running wild. He wants your love to, your love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So there is a place for doctrine. There is a place for understanding. There is a place for knowledge and for learning. 
And, and that is to inform and affect where your loves go. So you can have a head full of right knowledge and a heart that's not going the right direction. But if you have a heart that's going in the right direction, you need that love in there too. So he says, with all knowledge, imagine your love is like a magnet and it's suspended from a string and you're moving it someplace. That magnet is just going to go swing into whatever the closest magnetic thing is. You have no control over it. Your, your heart's running wild. Now let's take knowledge and all discernment and replace that string with a stick. And now you're moving that, that magnet and it's going to pull in certain directions, but you're still in control and bap, you can collect it onto what you want it to. That's what he means. That's what we need knowledge and all discernment for is so that we wind up in the right place. So let me give you a word picture of why we need knowledge and discernment. You're in a thrift store and you're just kind of looking around and you come across this painting. It's, it's a beautiful picture. It's this, this very scenic image of a, a rolling hillside in this mid-century, mid-18th century family out having a picnic with their daughter in a, in a long flowing dress and they're, they're enjoying this picnic. It's very, very rural kind of lovely image. You think, oh, that, that's really nice. I think I'd like that. And so you buy the picture and you take it home and you hang it on the wall. Is that a bad thing? You love the picture. It was a beautiful thing, but you have no knowledge, no discernment about what that picture is. It's just a nice photo or it's a nice painting, right? What happens if somebody comes over and says, let me tell you the rest of the story about this painting. This is part of two panels. This is the second panel. The first one's missing. You don't have it. The first painting was called The Lynching. And it was this family who went into town to watch a lynching. And this is the second panel where they then go off and enjoy a picnic. Now with that knowledge, does that picture still seem beautiful? It's just turned grotesque. That's what a family did is they went for, instead of like a, a, an opera or something, they went to watch a lynching and now they're enjoying a, a, a picnic. Do you see how your knowledge then informs your heart on that picture? Now you're thinking, I don't think I should have that up. That just feels icky. And so your discernment is going to come in and say, if somebody else comes in and knows what that picture is, what is that saying about me? I better take that down. I don't, I don't think I should have that. So your love, unguided, is in big trouble. You could wind up in weird places. We don't want to go there. We want our loves to be informed. And that's why Paul says he wants to love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. It's important to inform your mind so that your heart will head in the right direction. So Paul wants us to love, but he wants us to love well. And here's the other danger, uh, the other side of this danger, is sometimes we forget the heart and we just think more knowledge we resort to our modernity. If I just get more doctrine, if I get more understanding, if I read more of the Bible and memorize more of it and I get it, then I'm better off. But if love isn't attached to that, you're in big trouble. First Corinthians chapter 13, the famous love chapter, listen to what verse two says. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. So even there, Paul is saying, look, you have to have knowledge, but if you have knowledge without love, you're lost. So we have to understand these things. We have to search the Bible. We have to read the Bible. We have to understand so that our brains will be informed to then shape and mold our love correctly. So Paul wants us to have all knowledge or knowledge and all discernment to shape our love, that our love may abound more and more. So then if you've got love, if your love is growing, 
And now you've got knowledge and you've got discernment and it's shaping and it's forming your love. What, what comes next? Well, what he says next is so that you may approve what is excellent. Now that does not mean that Paul is saying your opinion about what is excellent makes it excellent. That's not what he's saying. That's not saying somebody, you know, the Bible says this is excellent. And you go, well, I don't think it is. I don't approve of that. What he's saying is once your heart is changed, your loves are now focused correctly. Doctrine is informing that. Scripture is informing that. And now when you see something that's excellent, you go, yes, that's excellent. That's beautiful. That's the way it should be. Do you see how that flows from your heart? But it comes from your brain informing your heart so that you would love what's excellent. Because if you're just that, that sounding gong, that noisy symbol, if you have knowledge but no love and you're nothing, then you, you don't really care about what's excellent or not. That, that, that doesn't grab you. So the way this works is we have love abounding. It's formed by our knowledge, and it causes us to look at things and say, that's good. That's not good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approve what is excellent. I'm going to say, I believe that that is excellent, and I understand why. Your hearts are becoming aligned to what God's heart is. And so once you have all of these things falling into place, then the next thing that Paul says, the result in your life, what will fall out, what will come out of your life is you will be pure and blameless. So if you love strongly, if you love rightly based on knowledge and discernment, if you love what is truly excellent, then your heart will be tuned to God's heart and you will desire what is pure and what is right. You will be pure and blameless if you love, not just if you know. That's, that's the heart of his prayer. Now, does this mean that once you've done this, you can be sinless because now you're pure and blameless? It, it can't mean that. It, it, can't, it can't do that because remember the theme of the book of Philippians is that you would live a life worthy of the gospel of, of Christ. So if your goal here is to be good enough so that you would become pure and blameless, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus' righteousness is given to you. We'll come back to this. Paul picks that up and he'll explain it in a little bit. It's his righteousness given to you. So then what does Paul mean that I will live a life pure and blameless? What he's saying is your life will then begin to align to that. You'll line up with who you are. The gospel is Jesus' robe of righteousness, this white, pure robe, has been wrapped around you when you put your faith in him. This robe is perfectly contoured to fit Christ. And so as it comes around you, you're, you're inside of it, and you begin to realize, I shouldn't bump into things that are going to sully this. It, when I reach my hand out for something outside the robe that, that's not good for me, I realize that I'm no longer covered, and, and it doesn't feel right. And so as you wear that robe of righteousness, you begin to grow into the form that that righteous robe was made for. You begin to come more like Christ. And so your life becomes pure and blameless. Not in a way that, that now you're worthy of salvation. No, you're worthy of the gospel by being a sinner and believing God. But the righteousness that comes to you begins to shape and inform you. And so it, it, it molds you into who you are. And then the next thing Paul says is you will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So what is the day of Christ? Well, the day of Christ is not a 24-hour period. It's not one day that Jesus is going to be. The day of is used often in Scripture metaphorically of an era, a, a period of time marked by something. So in the Old Testament, we heard the day of the Lord. 
And that wasn't just a sunrise and sunset where the Lord is there. It's this new era that's going to break in. The day of the Lord is that. So this day of Christ is that same idea. It is the day when Jesus returns. So when Christ comes back, the people who are his will be resurrected. He'll return with his saints who have died in, in Christ. He'll return with those, those of us who are still on the earth. We will be made new. We will be changed in the twinkling of an eye and be like him, and we will reign with him on the earth. And at the end of that time, then there's a general resurrection. The good and the evil are raised and everybody's judged. Goats, you go to everlasting punishment. Sheep, you go to everlasting life. And that's the day of the Lord. It's not a 24-hour period. So when he says that you will be pure and blameless for the day of the Lord, what he's saying is that righteous robe that's been wrapped around you is shaping you and forming you for the day that's coming, for the era that's going to arrive. So you won't get there and be like totally surprised at something different. Your heart will have been trained so much by the time it arrives, you go, this is what I've been waiting for, so that you'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And here's, here's where Paul, I think, loops back and says, now, let me make sure I'm clear on the gospel. Because the next thing he says is, you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. He does not say, you will be filled with righteousness. Paul is not teaching us here that God will pour his righteousness into you so then you can go out and do good works. And then you'll be doing enough good works that you can be saved. That, that would ignore the word, very important root, word, fruit of righteousness. So that's what he's talking about. He's saying that this righteousness that comes to you, it doesn't just cover you. It does that. Thank God it does that. But it does more than that in your life. It leads you to live more and more like Jesus, to live a life that is pure and blameless. And that is the fruit of that imputed righteousness. That's what comes out of having Jesus' righteousness put on you as it begins to change your life. That's why if you have just the knowledge, if you can recite all the doctrines and don't care about any of it, you're lost. That's what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 13 is you're, you're nothing. But when that comes in and you see the beauty of it and you approve what is excellent and you say, this is what is most important to me, then your heart is enlivened. And when the day of Jesus comes, your heart will click and you go, yes, that's what I've been waiting for. So, that's what's happening there. That's filled with the fruit of righteousness. And where does this righteousness come from? The next thing Paul says is that comes from Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. You are not just declared innocent by believing in Jesus. You are declared to be righteous because Jesus' righteousness is put on your account. So this fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ is the gospel. He's making it abundantly clear to us, this is not you working hard enough. This is not you trying to trick your heart into doing right things. This is the work of God. And that's, you, you know that's the fact because the last thing he says is to the, pray, to the glory and the praise of God. He started by praying, my prayer is that you would do this and that the result would be to the praise and the glory of God. It's not you doing it, it's God doing it. Because if it's us doing it, if it's us working it out and fighting through it, man, I'm going to get this figured out and I'm going to be a really good person, then we get to heaven and we high five each other. Good job, man. I knew you'd make it. You did enough work. You got here. We don't, there are no high fives in heaven. When we get to heaven, it is to the praise and the glory of God. We gather around the throne and we say, Lord, the only reason I'm here is because of you. And I can't believe it. That's wonderful. Why would you save me? Thank you for doing that. 
It's to his praise and his glory, not our own. So this is what God's done. This is why Paul is praying that their, their love may abound more and more. This is why he's praying that they would grow in these things, that the righteousness that has been assigned to them would produce fruit is to the praise and the glory of God. So let me ask you again, what do you want? What is it that you're after? What are you seeking? That's an important question because what you love, what you seek, what you desire, that is what you will pursue. So Paul's prayer for the Philippians is that he wants them to grow. He wants them to have their loves shaped, to have that love grow, to have it multiply, to, to take their hearts into great and glorious places. So what do you want? God said, I will give you the desires of your heart. And the perverse prosperity gospel says, see, all you got to do is ask in faith and God's just going to dump it right in your lap. What if what God means by I will give you the desires of your heart is I will assign to your heart proper and right desires? What if that's what he means by that? And then after I have assigned to your heart proper and right desires through this kind of a prayer, what if I then answer those desires? Wouldn't that be glorious? So friends, what do you want? How do you get it? Well, we have to love rightly. You have to. St. Augustine, Augustine talked about disordered loves. He, he, he is the, the apostle. As a matter of fact, this is what this book is mostly about, is uh, Augustine's doctrine of love, how he understood it. But he said that our loves can be disordered. We're, we're primary loving things. We, we are. We just can't help it. But you can love something more than you should. I, I, I love my car. It's a car that I've wanted for a long time. It's nice. It, I love it. But I don't love it more than I love my wife. I, I wouldn't get mad if my wife took my car someplace without asking me. If I did, then my loves are out of order. My love, my love for my car is now eclipsed my love for my wife. And so what is that top love supposed to be? That top love, that most primary thing is we need to love God. And then right below it, the second is like unto it. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see that? Jesus' primary teaching is about what you should love, how you should love. Now, how do we get there? How do I get my heart to align that way? With, all, with knowledge and all discernment. Read the scriptures. Read it. Buddha missed it because he didn't have the Bible. He couldn't have his mind renewed. He couldn't have his heart informed. He could merely observe the created world and, and get close. But the scriptures God has given to us to fill us with wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, to show us the beauty of who Jesus Christ is. Read the scriptures. Let that inform your loves. Be amazed on occasion when you're reading, where you just stop and go, wow, I can't believe that. That is so amazing. And delight in that. Stop and let it boil for a little bit. You don't have to keep pressing on. Let that just simmer in that heart for a little while so that it'll inform your loves, so that it'll make you approve what is beautiful, what is excellent. God has given you the ways to do it, and we need to take advantage of it. So I'm going to announce it now because we're getting drawn into the fall and end of the year is coming. At the, closer to the end of the year, we're going to put out some Bible reading programs for you. Read through the Bible in a year. It doesn't take more than 
10, 15 minutes in the morning or the evening or whenever it's available to you. Read the entire Bible in one year. You can do it. And let the word simmer. Let it bake into your brain. Let it sit in your heart. And see if your loves don't begin to change. That sin that you couldn't seem to shake. I, I know I shouldn't gossip, but man, I feel better when I gossip, except for about an hour later, then I feel like a real jerk. Well, let the word confront that and begin to say, let's, let's change what you love. Do you really need to feel important better than that other person? Let the word confront that with all knowledge and discernment and embrace that righteousness that Christ has given you. And that is how we will grow in Christ. That's how we become more like him. What do you want? Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would indeed grant us the desires of our heart in both senses, in both ways. Lord, would you implant the right desires, grant to us what the desires should be there that are there. And then Lord, would you turn around and answer those desires and meet them and show us that you are that glorious, that you are worthy of that much praise. Lord, as Paul prayed for the Philippians, I pray for us that our love, each individual person in this room, our love would abound more and more to the praise and the glory of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.